Hello and welcome to the Rules of Investing brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm Ali Selby and if you're like me, you're probably feeling a little confused right now. Since the beginning of the year, investors have been completely bombarded with a litany of conflicting market commentary on where best to invest. The indicators themselves also seem to be pointing in opposing directions. For equities focused fund managers, there's plenty of opportunity hidden within the world's major indices. For fixed income investors, there's more opportunity than ever before in bonds. In the end, everyone's just talking their own book. And who can blame them? How else are they meant to attract investors' hard-earned cash? Today's guest is different. She's completely independent and unrestricted by any investment management firm or asset class. Giselle Rue has 35 years of market experience. She's worked for the likes of Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, JB Weir and Escala Partners. And since 2019, she's been providing independent advice to a handful of advisory groups. In this podcast, Rue will be providing her unfettered opinion on markets, where she's seeing opportunity today, as well as why she believes global growth looks challenged from here. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, click the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified every time we post an episode. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Thank you so much for joining us today, Giselle. For those listeners who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in investment management? Hi, Ali. Um, Yes, I can, although you've done a pretty good job at summarising enough of it. Um, As you say, it's been quite a long time and uh, the advantage of a long time is you've seen a lot of investment conditions, you've heard a lot, you perhaps get too cynical, but essentially enjoy thoroughly the roles as investment officer because you get the multi-asset class roles that I had at uh, at JB Ware and Escala, plus you get to meet directly with clients, which I think is such a critical part. And prior to that, equity analysis was a terrific way to, if you like, start in financial markets. You know, you feel extraordinarily privileged to meet uh, chief executives and um, look at companies in great amount of detail and get involved in IPO. So it was a wonderful wonderful time. I have absolutely no regrets about any of it at all. And I'd encourage every curious person to consider this as a career. Today's investment environment is filled with a lot of noise. Investment managers have shared a myriad of views on how to best navigate the current market environment. And all the signals are kind of pointing in opposing directions. It feels like central bank moves are all that matters today. How can investors make sense of the market outlook? Yeah. I think investors have to bear in mind the the who's providing the information to them. Unsurprisingly, uh, fund managers will talk about the way they invest and what they're invested in and tell you what they're invested in. Their outlook is essentially predisposed to the way they've actually put the money to work and also that the vast majority of them are mandated to be fully invested and therefore simply have to find what they think frankly, might be the best of a bad lot. It's very rare for a manager to say, you know, I think the market's horrible. I'm not going to put any money to work. So um, you have to just bear in mind the kind of information that you're getting. There's nothing wrong with that. It is simply having a little bit of a, a radar on the reality that people are telling you something they've already done or are about to do. Um, and they're not necessarily, we, we know, not even necessarily, we know perfectly well 
a lot of it will not prove to be correct. So I just think people need to, it's nothing, it's great. It's fantastic to listen to or read all the stuff, but don't say, gee, that must be a good idea because so-and-so said so. Think about what do they really mean when they say that and, and where might they be wrong? Mm, yeah, 100%. We've seen Credit Titan in the last year. Can you just explain what exactly that is, how it's changed and why that matters for investors? Okay, it's probably something a lot of um, private investors don't pay enough attention to is the nature of credit and liquidity in in the economy and in investment markets and what's actually driving money flows uh, around asset classes or, or just generally. So obviously with um, interest rates having gone up at the fastest pace in, I don't know, 42 years or whatever somebody cites, it's always some, you know, big number. Um, it is an extraordinary repricing of the cost of money for businesses and to a large and obviously households as well as we hear almost daily about the mortgage market so but focusing on the business market the business industry or the the, the corporate sector has got a, a, a big increase in cost of of pricing of capital plus there is a a generally a more cautious approach to lending which of course is just a corollary of that is how sure can you be that you're going to get your money back when the price of money has more than doubled? There is a, a, a generally a little bit of withdrawal of availability of credit too, as people are more cautious about giving money to businesses, given that we don't know how the economies are going to unfold um, and how the cash flows of these businesses will cope with repaying the debt, never mind refinancing the debt at the end of the term. So, um, and, and bear in mind also that in US, with the uh, regional bank problems, there was a general tightening of liquidity, but that was just one other notch in what is likely to be a, an ongoing recalibration of how much credit actually flows into the, the corporate sector. How do you see that actually playing out? Well, it, it means it's more selective. It means that companies... Will have to, or companies or businesses or borrowers have to prove their cash flows, perhaps provide more security, so lower debt ratios, um, think carefully about what refinancing they will do. They can't automatically assume that they can refinance. So it should slow um, the companies that need to borrow a lot for the nature of their businesses, which is plenty of good companies. You think about Transurban is, by its nature, a very leveraged company. Um, those kind of companies may, you know, they've, they, those kind of companies may have taken out a lot of debt long term, but they will still need to think about what the pricing of debt is going to be. We're currently seeing our banking sector, um, you know, selling, uh, replacing what was government money with uh, wholesale money in the U.S. markets and paying over six percent. That's a lot more than what they paid in the past. They've got to make money by borrowing at 6%. So it's a, it's a very different ball game in terms of uh, what, therefore, the opportunities will arise. Just narrow the scope of what's, what's around. Obviously, that really impacts a lot of companies that have a lot of debt. But how has that impacted some of the returns that we've seen this year? Well, that's a really good point. Is um, it, it hasn't has had a, a very big impact because companies have repriced. Hello, inflation. You know, companies have had not been shy about uh, pricing while demand was good. They could push up their prices um, and 
cover their costs. And, you know, they even margins and shows up profit margins have been particularly sticky. It's a little difficult, by the way, to judge profit margins because um, during, you know, we had the, the, the post-COVID type recovery and, and those kind of symptoms coming through. But nonetheless, uh, companies have had to pay higher interest costs. And that'll probably continue, if not accelerate, over the next 12 months, because it's a lagged impact. If you think your mortgage takes a while to reprice, uh, businesses, you know, can often borrow, you know, two, three, four, five, seven years even. So they only really um, are, are impacted when the maturity of that debt tends to arise. We've seen some specific areas being affected. The U.S. commercial real estate sector, which was highly leveraged and and borrowed from some of the regional banks predominantly, um, is, by all reports, uh, really struggling with refinancing. And you start to see some sort of distressed sales and things there. What you might also then subsequently see is companies coming back into the equity market and trying to raise some capital to repay debt or not borrow and use equity for their growth, which obviously will be, at least in the temporary phase, somewhat dilutionary. But we haven't yet seen that happen, but I wouldn't be surprised to start to see that over the next 12 months. Do you think that's why we've seen such a rally in some of those tech giants in the US since the beginning of the year? Because they are really only the companies that we have that are, you know, actually growing their earnings? Well, you can debate whether they're growing their earnings because some of them, the, the true cash flow earnings are being chewed up by their aggressive expansion, but it makes sense for them to do so. And that's why the market's supporting them. If they can establish you know, vastly dominant market positions early on in the phase of a tech cycle, um, it makes sense for them to forego or to use their cash flow or forego some profits in order to do that. But yes, the the general um, commentary is that companies which have had predominantly good free cash flows, uh, like for example, your European luxury good companies have got high cash flows, those have all repriced relative to companies which are perceived to have been you know, more difficult debt type things and business conditions that are not necessarily in their favour. Mm. Global debt is now somewhere in the vicinity of $305 trillion. That's $45 trillion more than it was in the pre-pandemic period. Those are almost unimaginable figures. What does that actually mean for global growth going forward? It's, you know, it's an inescapable issue that at some point there's going to have to be some kind of reckoning uh, one would think. So not only have, as you said, they've increased the debt, some of it was spent during COVID and for all the people that want to knock uh, governments, you know, everybody was screaming for relief at the time, you know, now later they claim they you know, shouldn't have done it. Uh, and of course, companies, uh, countries or governments didn't really know what was going to happen. It made sense for them to try and you know, rescue their economies in the face of extraordinary uncertainty. But not only have they taken on that debt, but the cost of that debt now is significantly higher um, as they roll that debt uh, without paying it back. So it is going to, in its own right, that interest cost will start to become a fiscal drag that um, 
you know, governments will have to consider in just how they spend throughout a budgetary phase. We've seen budgets, you know, state governments here, even the federal government, even in the US, you know, are becoming less inclined to just grow the, their deficits ad infinitum. And government spending does matter. It is the key, in, in my view anyway, about government spending is that it is a redistribution mechanism. It essentially, um, where, and this is, might be a controversial view, happy to say it, is that as companies have um, reduced income security and income levels, or as a, in, in real terms, uh, governments have stepped up with family payments and energy rebates and childcare payments or whatever the case might be. Um, and so governments are kind of doing the role that you know, private sector wages might otherwise have done. Um, and that's partly why corporate profitability remains so charmingly nice, you know, is that not paying a lot of these costs and they're able to keep, being able to generally keep wage costs significantly under control. So you just, you really struggle to think how this can be drawn out forever. You know, you start to, I, I don't want to say Japan's always the story, but it, it is, you know, countries with very high debt levels statistically show that they generally don't do economically that well. There's a saying that the stock market and the economy are not the same. In today's world, it kind of feels like we've completely forgotten that. What is the difference between GDP and corporate growth and how does that shape equity market valuations? Yeah, it, it can be. I mean, we focus so much on economic growth and talk about economic growth and there's a, a chasm of uh, difference between economic growth in terms of measuring GDP, which is in many cases a, a flawed measurement of a, an economy in any event, um, and what you see happening in the corporate sector. So um, simplistically, if you like, uh, GDP uh, includes all the activities in the country, be that uh, social security and uh, you know, all the healthcare, all the defence, which is not in the equity market and not represented there at all. The equity market represents uh, companies that are prepared to take risk and have a an ambition to grow profit and market share. Governments don't have those same ambitions at all. So you should expect that there is, you know, relatively low uh, dependence on GDP numbers per se for a significant number of companies. It's not to be ignored. I mean, obviously, if you have a, a recession, people lose their jobs. That's the main way that it translates back into the financial world. But for most for most businesses, you know, take the current case of Nevada. I don't think Nevada cares one iota where American growth is going to be 1%, 3% or recessionary next year. It's got nothing to do with the way their business is really evolving at this point in time. So there's obviously some companies that have a much higher correlation, but the bulk of the equity market represent a fairly narrow spectrum of economic activity and generally, if you like, call it the more ambitious part of economic activity. Mm. What do you believe will drive growth over the coming decade? Yeah. Um, well, the, on the positive side, I mean, it's the usual culprits that I think are raised very frequently, which make logical sense. The continuing development of technology, AI obviously being now the iteration of 
that technological development, um, the whole spending on energy, you know, grids, whatever the case might be, that is a, a lot of spending and a lot of um, adapting of technology. People will replace their stovetops with induction and buy electric cars and get charge stations and, uh, you know, on and on, you know, these kind of transformative type ways in which people might live. There's a thousand other things you could think of that people will do. Um, the I, I hate the word, but it's you know used frequently. Deglobalization, in other words, that people are onshoring or whatever you know whatever terminology you like to use. Um, it is true. It is happening that countries are saying, "Well, I can't be entirely dependent on somebody else's whatever," and I will want a degree of of being able to build things myself. So these things have to be constructed. So there's a lot of that, but. You know, the, the, the bigger picture issues still remain a big hurdle. The, the, the demographics of the world is, is not favorable to growth. China was a massive driver of growth, and that's so well known. Um, and it's really starting to struggle in terms of its growth, not least because it's got a big uh, state-based debt level as well. Um, you know, these are substantial and the the debt itself. So these are substantial hurdles that will probably keep global growth, you know, well below what we experienced over the past, say, three decades. So it's not tomorrow or intermediate. You know, it's it's more of a long-term issue that you you you. It's it's not as easy. I mean, the the optimist would say that the whole transformation of energy is akin to a, a China. It's quite possible that you know, it's like a it's like China opening. If globally everybody transforms their energy systems, maybe maybe one's being too pessimistic and that could actually be the biggest driver of economic growth in the next five to ten years. It's not impossible, like but I'm not a sure. In there though. I feel like <laughs> there's a but. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it could be, but yeah, yeah, because because it's it, we just don't know, and it um, it's not clear that it will result in productivity improvements. Um, you know, some of the productivity that I think was experienced in the Western world was because China took on the less productive jobs, for example. We conversely now have got productivity problems because we've got a lot of jobs in childcare, aged care, um, those kind of areas, which just don't lend themselves to high productivity gains. So I, I'm less, con I would be less confident. Now, I'd prefer to err on the side that suggests it's not going to be as great an economic period, or at the very least, it's going to be a lot more volatile with periods of, you know, what, some people use the word secular stagnation, but in other words, just sort of low-end growth, which it looks like what's probably going to emerge sometime over the next 12 months. How do you find opportunity in that kind of environment? I think there, there's always something that will be on the top of the, the pile. And oh, if I'd give a whatever for hindsight to be able to tell you what the next best best idea was going to be. Um, I think there are some, though, quite sensible ideas floating around. I think a, a very careful and considered uh, look at some of the credit markets. If you can earn 
you know, not necessarily, I mean, there are some offering, for example, 10% plus, you have to read it for what it is. That implies that there is a higher risk appetite there than one that might give you 6 to 8%. I mean, that is just the nature of the game. Some of them might be other reasons, but that would be, but something like that to me makes a lot of sense if, if people want a little bit of safety, albeit remembering that there is risk and a lot of these, particularly in the private credit, there's a, a little bit of a lack of transparency, which I'd like to think the managers will step up and give us a lot more detail over time. Um, but even in equity markets, there are opportunities that arise. I mean, if you like the whole AI phenomena, you know, blown it up into that kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying that's going to recur in the next six months, but there will be, you know, enough good good enough opportunities, I suspect, that arise over the coming 12 months. But I, my view would be is there'll be quite a narrow bunch and, and not that easy. And you might have to be prepared to cope with, you know, quite a bit of drawdown before your, before your prize in your eyes starts to arise. You know, it, it takes mm. time. Are there any other areas of the equity market where you're finding opportunity right now? I, I think there's a couple of areas that I think are quite interesting. I do think the small and mid-cap part of the market has been so underrated, or it's, it's, it's relative valuation compared to the bigger end of the market, underrates the potential of a, a, not the whole index, but of a, you know a lot of small cap companies which haven't had profit problems and are still trading at 10 times earnings or whatever the case might be. You know, they just because they happen to be in an area that is considered risky, they have been a little ignored. Um, as I mentioned, I, I mean, if, if I was to put my one fist out into an area that I think, you know, we've regrettably kind of keep our eyes on is something like cybersecurity. I mean, it's, everybody hears daily about how, you know, how difficult and how bad various forms are going to be and you can't help but think that um, it's it's at some stage going to have significant repercussions and companies that are trying to do something about that and you to me I think they are they've they've got to have a future I mean it's almost inconceivable to me that they don't have a, a good future if they can prove that they've got something that will try and stay in advance of, of all the stuff that goes on in that area. I want to touch back on smaller microcaps. They obviously haven't been this unloved for a long period of time. If liquidity is drying up, obviously the first place to lose that cash is smaller microcaps. How can they perform in this kind of environment that we're in now? Yeah. Well, so there's two answers to that. I think some of them, just like big companies, some of them are actually producing free cash flow. So they're not as dependent on debt markets. That's not all of them. I mean, obviously, at the the super growthy end that tend to be a bit more capital hungry. But there are some companies that just have niche operations that um, allow themselves to grow and produce respectable cash flow over time. Um, the other side is that if companies have got good growth and can prove it in the current environment, um, they will find a ready place for capital um, either raising additional equity capital. And sure, what you have is initially a dilution to the share price. 
But if that uh, acquisitions that they make is well applied, you know, and if it's thoughtfully looked at as to are they able to make uh, acquisitions which are positive for profits in the medium term, um, they should not have a problem in raising capital in my mind at this point in time. The, the one thing about small and mid cap is there's, you know, the numbers vary, but let's say somewhere between 25, I've seen numbers up to 27% of what you just call no hopers. I mean, they're just companies that are um, unlikely to make any money, uh, not well managed, whatever. And, and that's why it's probably one of the rare areas where uh, active management will pay off relative to passive. Hmm. I want to talk about cash. The return on risk-free assets is pretty attractive right now. I'm getting 5% on my savings with ING and TDs are delivering investors around that or more. Is it worth investing in risk assets like equities or credit right now when you can get a pretty attractive return on cash? Yeah. Um, you know, ca- cash is... Uh is always a good place for a temporary holding period. I think I'm pretty certain the data will show you that uh, there's never been a 12-month rolling period where cash was the best returning asset. So I think there've been, from memory, when I last did the data, which is admittedly some years ago, it was eight months was the longest time that we could find where holding cash on a rolling 12-month return basis was actually your best idea. So. Cash should be there uh, because you want to invest in something, you know, either waiting for the new tax year or whatever you're trying to do, or you try to consider which active, you know, which where you want to put your money. Um, so that's one reason not to hold too much in the way of cash. I mean, cash should obviously there for emergencies if you if you need to, um, but otherwise, um, it's it's just not. I mean, five percent is a perfectly decent return, but you should be able to do better in other asset classes. You know, so by way of example, uh, credit will give you more than that right now. You know, you can buy a bank credit and make more than five percent. Um, and if you buy it and hold it all the way to maturity, you will have made that money. You know, regardless of the volatility and the pricing of the underlying credit. Um, the so I just I'm, I'm wary about suggesting cash in a, a medium long term. It it just it it's a cautionary thing. It's helpful because it doesn't have volatility. So if people loathe volatility, if they just want to know that they've got twelve months of money up their sleeve. But the other thing to bear in mind is that um, if cash is going to continue to offer you high rates which means interest rates will have to stay high or go higher, then, you know, the the rest of your portfolio will probably not perform that well. Um, you know, if, if interest rates have to go enough higher or kept high long enough, well, it actually begs the question then, why do you hold any investment assets? So it's sort of, <laughs> you know, it's a, almost a contradictory thing to hold growth investment assets and then sit on a, a massive pile of cash. But by all means, small parts, cash, perfect. With all that in mind, with everything we've talked about today, what areas of the market are you avoiding right now and why? 
yeah, these are, um, you know, I, I'll, well, I, this, this is a bit of a, it's again, it's a personal bent and I have no problem with people that want to invest in it, but I, I just can't warm to gold or Bitcoins. I just, um, you know, uh, many, many years back, I actually did a study on gold pricing and, you know, while I, you know, it's more uh, related to exchange rates than anything else. But I just feel it seems, uh, you know, unless you've got some spurious motivation or you think some you know, central bank in the world is going to try and buy gold or something like that. But I just, just people have talked about this for years and it just doesn't seem to happen. And I still, you know, I get it that Bitcoin has a role to play, but I still don't understand how that role finds its way into investment markets. So separating out the the possibility of it becoming a medium of exchange relative to saying, I'm just going to hold on to it because I think the price will go up. You know, I, it just, I don't understand those two in particular. So I think those are areas that on the margin, there obviously would be a marginal investment. Um, you know, I also think my opinion, I think residential property, investment property, people entirely forget just how expensive it is to maintain. You know, the geezer blows up or it needs refurbishment and the painting has to be redone. Um, you know, they and they don't calculate properly the total cost of, you know, they look at the purchase price as though they didn't pay stamp duty, never maintain the property. And then they look at the sale price and calculate it out. I mean, by way of example, we owned a, a wonderful home in inner city Melbourne, for nearly 30 years and one of my sons said to me you know how well did we do because it looked like we'd done really well and when I actually calculated it out it was about a four and a half five percent return per annum pretty good that ignores the fact that we would have had to live somewhere as well so so that wasn't the investment property but it's not nearly as high as what people like to claim it is. Mm. Okay, we've come to the end of the episode now where we like to ask our guests three common questions. It's a bit of fun. It's just a thought experiment. So the first question is, what is one thing investors are getting wrong about today's markets? Uh, I don't want to presuppose I know exactly what people are thinking, but my sense is that people are expecting things to revert to the past or revert to usual or something. So there's way too much focus on when that happened in previous times, you know, and now the same pattern is going to unfold this time. And it, what it drags people into is thinking that there is no fundamental change that really takes place. It just implies that there is just a, a predictable cycle of when something goes up or down, something naturally will occur afterwards that just mean reverts it back to where it was. Um, I think along with many other people that there is a fundamental change in, in financial markets with rates, inflation, uh, growth dynamics. And therefore, um, I wouldn't pay too much attention to what happened in the past. I'd focus on what could happen in the next five to 10 years. Okay. I want you to share a story of a big win or a big loss from your investment career. What happened and what were the lessons that you learned from it? <laughs> um, those are always hard because, uh, you know, we tend to uh, – retrospectively fit what we think or, or so but you know we and it wasn't I didn't make the, a, a, a sensible decision it was happened at the time uh, where I was working we listed CSL at that time we were allowed to 
as an employee apply for shares, we've got some shares and are still holding the same shares. So you can imagine after all those years of holding the same shares. But to be honest, in the last five years, it's not been a great investment. The share price has literally gone sideways. But it does come down to some really long-term holdings that you can have. You know, people who bought Microsoft and Apple and Googles, whatever the case, and hold, held on to them for a long time. But they're rare. And I think, to be honest, most people, it's by chance rather than by amazing design that you come across these really terrific in, investments over time. Um, the wrong thing I think that most people do, including myself, is is sell at the wrong time. Either we sell at the bottom or we refuse to sell at uh, uh, when we've made our returns. It's We just don't – we're terrible at selling. No, I definitely am terrible at selling as well. Okay, last question now. If markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own one asset class, what would it be and why? Well, Ali, that's terrible advice anyway. So, you know, we'd never own one asset class. <laughs> I would never dream of doing it. Uh, but And you have to also then go, well, what do I need? Do I need income or am I, you know, looking for growth? But I'm going to give you an answer just for the sake of uh, the question. Um, if I were to buy something today in anticipation that I will just hold it for five years, um, it probably would be something related to cybersecurity. I think there's either companies or or things. I just think it's it's missing in my portfolio. I should have it, and that's something I should buy. Okay, perfect. Well, Giselle, I've absolutely loved this chat. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. That's it for me. Next week, you'll be guided by the smooth vocals of David Thornton and his guest. I hope you learned as much as I did from that podcast. Thanks again for taking the time to listen.